Turn in your Bibles, please, to the general epistle. That's what that is, the general epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Last week, we just did our introduction into 1 Peter and kind of laid out uh, what some of those primary themes would be and give you a little background here. We are reminded from last week that Peter is writing his first epistle against the backdrop of lots of pain and suffering. And it is both a message of encouragement, stand fast, and a warning. Hard times are upon us. Peter is not writing to an individual, but he's writing to five different congregations of believers. They were, uh, these local churches would have been made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Although their backgrounds were different, they all shared very common ground. They were all believers. They were all part of the body of Christ, and they were all facing intense persecution for their faith. That's an important aspect here that we need to keep in mind. It's not just that they were suffering. It's not just that they were having a hard time. It's that they were suffering and being persecuted because of their faith. Now, there are several themes in 1 Peter that we'll address throughout this epistle. There's the theme of suffering, which brings glory to God. That is, again, the idea of suffering for your faith. Then there's the second theme throughout 1 Peter, which is instructions to Christians as how they should be living as they're going through this suffering for their faith. What should be their mindset? What should be the goal? How are they going to get through that? Then they are actually instructed as they're going through that and Actually, just in a few verses later, in verse 6 in chapter 1, they are instructed that they should rejoice. And then again, greatly rejoice, for they are bringing glory to God in the midst of their suffering for God. And then another theme of Peter's uh, is his desire that these scattered believers focus on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That that, is, that could happen at any time, and they should be prepared for that. And then lastly, he wants them to be confident in their election and calling by God's grace. And that's really hard to miss because it's in the very first verse. And so we're going to spend a little time on what that means and what it doesn't mean today. And it's this last theme, again, that we'll be looking at this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for... Uh, all of these believers who are gathered here today. Lord, we know some are traveling. We know some are ill. We know some, uh, Lord, are uh, helping others. We pray, Father, that you would be with them. We miss them this week. We, Lord, pray for those who are at home who are uh, struggling with different types of illnesses or, uh, Lord, uh, different things. I pray that you would comfort their hearts as well and encourage them and uh, perhaps, Lord, someday soon we'll all be together again, worshiping soon together. But, Father, open up our hearts and our minds to our passage here this morning, Lord, as we want to glean from it what you want us to glean from it and then apply it to our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of your word. So, Father, help us to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, again, Peter is addressing his book to those who reside as aliens. You can see that right in verse 1. Let's just look at that again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered 
that's that word diaspora, diaspora, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, some of you have it uh, slightly different depending on whatever translation that you're using. Some of it says to the elect aliens or to the elect foreigners. Uh, actually, in the Greek, the uh, chosen or the elect, it's the same word there in the Greek, is actually at the very beginning of the sentence. And in Greek language, that means the emphasis is on that. So he says, uh, he, again, we're, this book is addressed to those who reside as aliens, scattered again. Uh, and those areas are all northern regions of modern Turkey. That's where they would have been, those five different areas. Now, these churches may have been founded by converts from the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. That's what some folks think. Uh, could have been on Peter's missionary journeys into that area. Could have been by converts from the Apostle Paul from nearby regions where he preached. Remember, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia and uh, Bithynia. Or it could have been some combination of these. But either way, we have five different congregations of believers, and they're a mix of both Jew and Gentile. Now, again, the theme here that Peter wants, what he's trying to, his goal, his aim, is to encourage their faith and strengthen their hope in the Lord because they're being persecuted for their faith. He wants them to, to be prepared to endure as the storm approaches. And he wants them to know, you already know the storm is approaching. I want you to know the storm is here. You're already facing it and it's already happening. So point number one in your notes today, he says he wants them to know that we have hope because we are the elect or because we are the chosen. Now, what does it mean to be chosen and or elect by God? This is a distinctive that is only used of Christians in the New Testament. But whenever this term is used, it raises many questions in the minds of people. They wonder how the teaching that God has chosen some for eternal salvation can be reconciled with the biblical emphasis upon man's responsibility to choose God. Much of the confusion stems from straw man positions on both sides of the equation. Some have heard that election means that God chose some in eternity past to be saved, and then at the same time, he must have been decreeing others to not be saved or condemning them to eternal damnation. This, whole, this view holds a high view of God's sovereignty, but it denies man's responsibility to choose God as essential or even necessary. Others have gone the other way and taken the opposite view that for all practical purposes denies God's sovereignty. They say the Lord looked into the future and foresaw who would believe in Jesus, and then God chose them on that basis. But that makes God a passive bystander in salvation, hoping that you would choose him, placing all of the onus, if you will, for salvation entirely upon the will of man. But of course, if man is completely free to believe God, then he is completely free to quit believing God as well. You can't have one without the other. So the consequences of that view is that you never have eternal security which contradicts many, many passages that you do indeed have eternal security. The best you can hope for in this view is that you're on the right side of the ledger when you die. 
you're in the believing side of the ledger and not in the unbelieving side of the ledger. And I have to tell you, my friends, that doesn't sound very comforting at all in that view, which seems to contradict the entire message that Peter is trying to convey to believers, and that is the message of hope. The truth of the matter is that election and man's responsibility to choose God are both taught in the Bible. There's a reason it's been debated for five centuries. It's not because it's so easy that we could just figure it out and it's there. It's because the Bible speaks of both. We cannot call ourselves good students of the Bible, good Bereans, and then ignore doctrines that we find uncomfortable. We must acknowledge that God does indeed choose some to be saved. That's exactly what the text says. The word elect really means to be chosen by God, as mentioned in verse 2. And we find this theology throughout the scriptures. So let me give you a couple examples on each side of the equation to just emphasize this point. So keep your place in 1 Peter and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I'll actually start off in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are many, many other passages regarding this idea of election or chosen, electos in the Greek. And we don't have the time to unpack all those, or that's the only thing we would talk about for the next 40 minutes. But suffice it to say, the truths are stated again and again throughout Scripture about election, that God elected some to be saved. His election was not based on any merit in us. He did not look in and see what a great heart we have or that we would be of some great value to him or that we would somehow earn it and do great things for him. Also, this election took place in eternity past, actually before there was a foundation in the world. So it has no, we cannot wear it like a sense of pride but it is in the word of God. So we have to acknowledge that it's here. 
We must also acknowledge that man is both responsible and accountable for his decision to choose God. In fact, the Lord repeatedly invites all men to be saved. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You might not even need to look there. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever or whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That kind of sounds like it's man's responsibility to choose God. Whosoever. Now, go to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord, what? Might be saved, could be saved, should be saved. There's a potential to be saved. Shall or will be saved. Now turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 17. This is one of the last things that is said in the book of Revelation. By Christ, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So here we're seeing both sides of the equation again, repeatedly. And I'm just I'm just handpicking a few verses, but we could go on and on and on on both sides of the ledger. That's why it's not an easy doctrine for us to work through. And just as we saw examples on one side, we see examples on the other. These truths seem paradoxical in our finite minds. But I want you to be rest assured there's no confusion in God's mind in how these two things work together. There's no contradiction. <coughs> there's no conflict. There's no chaos in the mind of God and how these two things work together. One illustration that I found helpful here is that of a railway track. One rail is God's election and the other is man's responsibility. Both tracks are needed both rails are needed for this theological train of biblical truth to move forward. If we remove the rail of man's responsibility, then our train ca- crashes into the ditch of fatalism. In other words, it doesn't really matter if you, uh, uh, what you do. If God hasn't chosen you, too bad for you, short straw in life. If you remove, uh, if you remove the rail of election... Then we have a God who's sovereign over all things except our salvation. And then we end up with a very man-centered theology and no assurance of eternal life. So both are necessary, even though it's hard for us to comprehend how those two things work together. And I want you to recall also that these were given as uh, as a source of hope for believers who are being persecuted not as a theological construct for them to ponder over for the next 500 years. 
it really is meant to encourage their hearts in the midst of suffering. So keep that in mind in the context of what's going on in this letter. Also, now go back to First uh, Peter here. So point number one, we have hope because we are the elect or because we are chosen. We have hope. And I'll bring this together for us in the end if we have time, which we may not. Okay. Point number two. You are elect by the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see that in the beginning of verse 2. According, he says, right? Uh, He says, you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you are elect by the foreknowledge of God the Father. This verse tells us why believers are elect and chosen by God. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word foreknowledge means to know beforehand. Again, Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked into the future and saw that you would believe. That's not what that word means. I know sometimes we like to make it seem like that's what it means, but that's not what it means. Though God is omniscient and knows all things, his foreknowledge is not referring to the fact that he knows facts, but rather that he knows people in an intimate saving relationship. What does that mean? That means before time began, God knew you before you existed. How does that happen? That's what it means. Before there was a world, before there's a foundation of the world, he knew you intimately, intimate saving relationship. God knows what's going to happen in salvation Because foreknowledge means that he pre-planned, predestined, preordained, and then made it happen. That's what the word foreknowledge actually means. He has predetermined, predestined, preordained. It means God made an effective choice. We see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jeremiah 1.5, you don't need to turn there. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. What? How is that even possible? Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was not even born yet. God knew Jeremiah in a saving, intimate relationship and called him to be a prophet to the nations before he was even born. God is not saying he knew Jeremiah would accept and follow him and one day be a great prophet. He's saying, I knew you in a saving, intimate relationship way and ordained that these things would happen and that's why they happened. God is not saying that he knew Jeremiah would accept and follow him and be a prophet. That's passive. The actual tenses of the verb are active. This is God is the one who's doing this. Now turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. Peter's great sermon here, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your minds, just as you yourselves know. This man was delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is what foreknowledge means. God 
knew beforehand because he predetermined and then planned and predestined that it would happen. So we have hope because we're elect. You are elect by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's point number three. The elect have hope despite being aliens and strangers in the world. And this is what I want you to get from these very heavy theological passages this morning. He's contrasting two different things here. He's saying, you are aliens and strangers in this world because you are mine. Because I have sanctified you. Because I chose you. Because you are my children. You should not be surprised that you're having these issues. Because I knew you would. I ordained that you would. Aliens, this word in aliens, also used in chapter 2, contains two inherent ideas. These are scattered believers who are both foreigners and temporary residents. The same, my friends, is true for believers today. You are a foreigner. You don't belong in this world. In Jesus' words, we are in the world, but we're not of this world. We should not speak its language or follow its customs. And our behavior should be distinct from the residents of this world. Have you ever traveled to a foreign country and quickly realized that you stood out rather obviously as a foreigner? Cindy and I and Ruby went to Guyana just a few years ago. And I remember when we went to the markets and we were walking through the shops, there were not a lot of people who looked like us. There were not a lot of people who dressed like us. There wasn't hardly anybody who talked like us. And I'm sure as they stared at our faces as we walked through the markets, as they were filleting fish and chicken with a machete, the look of astonishment on our face, they could tell we were not from around there. But despite the excellent hospitality of our host, there was no doubt that Guyana was not our home. We were aliens and foreigners there. Now, another favorite word in Peter's epistle is this word anastrophe. And he uses it six times here or five times in this epistle and a couple times in the next one. But it means way of life or behavior. And the point is, as Christians, my friends, our way of life, our conduct, our behavior should stand out like a foreigner stands out in a different country. That's the idea. That's what he's trying to encourage them with. We're supposed to be different than the world. The The New King James calls it peculiar. Now, many of us know many peculiar Christians, but that's not, he's not talking about weird. He's talking about distinct. You're to be distinct from the world. Others should be able to recognize that you're not of this world, that you're a foreigner here. Peter makes it clear, just as, God, just as Jesus did, that we are not to become isolated from the world, but we're to live godly lives that honor God in this world. Likewise, we are not to live apart from the church. We are not some, we don't become saved and then take off in some hermit adventure and go live in our spiritual cocoon by ourselves. We're not called to do that either. As a matter of fact, we're called to live out our faith in community with other Christians, with the other called out ones. As someone put it, we are not to live in the world and go to church. We're to live in the church and then go to the world. So as one sense of the word alien means that we are foreigners in this corrupt and broken world, there's another aspect of the word alien that we need to look at, and that means that we're temporary residents. 
We're just a passing through, as the old hymn said. This world is not my home. We're just a passing through. That's true. We're not to be settlers, but pilgrims. We're looking for our real home in heaven. And Peter brings us out numerous times. He'll say for a little while or during the time of your stay on earth or your aliens now, but the day of visitation is coming or the rest of the time in the flesh, he'll say. Or with the day of judgment to follow or after you've suffered for a little while, constantly reminding them this is just the vapor of eternity. This is the blink of an eye in the span of eternity. And he wants them to keep that perspective. And all of this is very practical to those who are suffering because when you look around and you see all kinds of ungodly people that seem to be doing quite well and you're being persecuted for your faith, you start to ask yourself, is it really worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth it to, to suffer this kind of persecution. Sometimes people mock Christianity as just like a coping mechanism for stress. And if that's all it is, my friends, as Paul says, then we who have hoped in Christ in this life are of all men to be most pitied. But I believe one of the primary reasons that our culture has increasingly moved away from God and believing that our hope lies within ourselves is due to the fact that we have not endured the kind of suffering that those did just one generation ago. Those in their 70s, 80s, 90s, that generation, my friends, saw families decimated by war where fathers and brothers and fiancés and friends were killed in action all too regularly. And they didn't see them for years. And every day they hated, waiting, not knowing whether that knock would come on the door and two military men would be standing there with a telegram. And it wasn't just them. They had friends here that were experiencing that and loved ones and other parts of their family. And that was going on all around them. And it was a daily occurrence. Their generation saw that every day. And diseases like mumps and measles and chickenpox and malaria and polio were a constant threat to that generation. And many of their friends succumbed to that. Infant mortality was very high. It was not just an expectation that you'd go have a baby and that'd be that. Even death during childbearing was very high. My point is, is that it was not that long ago that our culture was constantly reminded of the brevity of this life, my friends. That it's just a vapor. And death was a constant reminder of that fact. That life, this life is not all there is. And that you should be living your life focused on eternity, not just today. Christians can live with hope in this hostile world. People going through trials and suffering need hope. Peter is going to say in verse 3 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And he instructs us to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us through Jesus Christ. But biblical hope is not like worldly hope. Worldly hope is uncertain at best. Oh, gee, I hope it's nice tomorrow. Oh, gee, I hope I get a raise. There's a lot of anxiety, not much certainty in that kind of hope. But biblical hope is certain, though not yet realized, 
because it's backed by God who cannot lie. And this is what Peter wants his audience to know. How can they have hope in a world where they are aliens and strangers, in a world where their suffering for Christ seems to know no bounds? And Peter's going to talk about this throughout this whole letter. He wants to know, you're not part of this world. Don't put your focus on these temporal things today, but put your perspective on who you are in Christ and how special you are to God. Not because of anything that you've done, but simply because he cast his love upon you. How amazing is that, my friends? We are strangers in this world. What does that look like, my friends? I'll tell you what that looks like. It means that you should expect some suffering or be considered a little bit peculiar in this earth. And we are not part of this world. Therefore, at times we'll be misunderstood and hated and persecuted. And the elect of the strangers of this world, because their home is in heaven, they do not bear the marks of this world's culture. So let this encourage the believer, especially when they're persecuted for being different. The same thing happens today, my friends, whenever someone is saved. Nothing is the same as it used to be the moment you are saved, is it? Everything has changed because you aren't the same person. You are not the same person you used to be. Now you're a stranger to people you've known your entire life. That's hard for Christians to deal with sometimes. Peter wants them to know there's been a change in your life. You now belong to God. That makes you a stranger and an alien in this world. What does that look like in real life? Let me just tell you quickly. I'll give you some examples of what this looks like. If you're in business and you've decided as a Christian not to cheat, not to lie, not to be dishonest in any way, if you've decided to deliver what you promised to deliver, you're a stranger in this world. If you're a husband or a a wife and you've decided to be faithful to your spouse because you're a Christian, you're a stranger in this world. If you're a teenager or a young 20-something and you've decided to do your work as unto the Lord, not as pleasing men, not just chasing up the corporate ladder, not trying to build your your bank account, but you just want to do whatever you do to be pleasing to God, you are a stranger in this world. If you're depressed and discouraged and you have said, no, I won't turn to drugs or alcohol to handle my problems, you're swimming against the tide. You're a stranger in this world. If you're working in an office where profanity and loose talk are the accepted norm and you've decided not to join in, God bless you, my friends, but you're a stranger in this world. It's not a question of isolation from the world. It's a question of being in the world and not of the world. That's our condition. We are strangers in this world. Peter wants them to understand that they not just haphazardly suffering because they somehow drew the short straw of life. Instead, he wants to know that they are loved, in fact, chosen by God unto salvation to accomplish his will for his glory that they are indeed special to God. They are his children adopted into his family. And even that was not some random choice. He foreknew them and then predestined and preplanned and foreordained for that very thing to happen. God did not simply observe them or have information about them about some future time in history. Instead, he chose them according to or consistent with his plan and purpose long before there was even a people group formed. 
He knew them in a saving relationship and called them to be the ones that serve him, not based on anything they had done, but simply because of his grace. And that brought these believers great hope and comfort, and it meant to do the same for us today. Look again at what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, 5. Let me just read it for you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, to be set apart, to be blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Peter instructs his readers that God's divine initiative has operated in their lives even before they were aware of it, even before they were born. It is this purposeful plan of God larger than an individual's life that forms this foundation of hope and encouragement that Peter wants to talk about with them. All right, my friends, well, we're out of time. We'll continue to look at what, why, as believers, we should have great hope when we're suffering for Christ next week. But for now, know that God chose you before time began. He didn't choose you because of anything you did or would do. He chose you before the foundation of the world. But just because he chose you does not mean that you don't have any human responsibility and accountability or that they're not necessary because that would contradict Scripture as well. And we would all be wise to ensure that we keep both sides of these things in the same balance that Scripture does. And just because our finite minds struggle with these concepts does not mean there's any confusion or mixed messages in the counsel of God. Lastly, even though we're aliens and strangers in this world because of our faith, that does not mean that any suffering we endure for him is just bad luck or that there aren't any intended meaning or consequences. In fact, it means just the opposite. It means that God has chosen you for this specific purpose, and through it all, he will transform you more and more like his son as you accomplish his will and also bring glory to himself. That is what he's saying in the first part of 1.2 verses of this epistle. Well, my friends,